What does the lion say, Tirza? Yeah, that's right. He roars. Thank you, baby. Thank you, Genevieve. Good girl. So let's look at the passage from 1 Corinthians first. I just think, I'd like to take a moment to pray here. Uh, Abba, thank you so much for this morning. And we desire you. We, we desire to really encounter you this morning and hear from you. And if there's stuff in our lives where you want to correct our course or change the way we think or whatever, uh, we just want to give you free reign to do that, Father. I I pray that you would be glorified this morning in all of our discussion as we go through your word. I pray that you would really make it come alive for us, uh, make it jump off the page. I pray that all of us could walk away from our study this morning saying that we met you, that we heard something directly from you, um, that you taught us something. And uh, something practical too, Father. Thank you so much. Amen. Yeah, so let's look at 1 Corinthians 8, chapter 8 together. So in my talks, you've noticed I often toggle between talking on a community level, like talking you know, uh, to us as a group, and then talking as a broader movement, the Hebrew roots slash Messianic Jewish movement, whatever you want to call it. So um, take note of that, okay, as, as we go through this. Sometimes I'm saying stuff for us, sometimes I'm saying stuff for us as a, as a broader movement, because we have people joining us over the internet. What, it really hit me, like, in verse 1 of chapter 8, Paul says, okay, he, he makes this uh, contrast between knowledge and love. Like, you know, having the correct facts and having all the information in your head and then actually, like, loving people and engaging with people and, like, taking care of each other and stuff, eh? And uh, he says knowledge can give us... Okay, he literally said knowledge puffs up. So knowledge can give you a swelled head. It has that danger. Uh, Love, though, is constructive, he said. Love builds up. And... We are in a movement of people who are really like, who really study the Bible hardcore. I mean, seriously, like, a lot of us are, or our Old Testaments, like, they kind of get a little dusty. You know, some of that stuff in Ezekiel, you start reading through Ezekiel and you just kind of get lost, and before you know it, you're sleeping or whatever, you know? But like, but we're actually like, the Father is like really bringing the Old Testament to life for us. Um, he's teaching us stuff, stuff from it. He's helping us to realize how it applies to our lives, just as uh, our Savior Yeshua himself modeled it. And uh, that's exciting. But there's a danger in it. The danger is we can become a movement that is all about knowledge. Really. I mean, like in, the, in, in Messianic communities, we do a lot of hardcore studying. We do a lot of midrashing, like talking about the Word, right? And that's good, but sometimes we're in danger of becoming imbalanced. We end up doing so much study and, 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 and prioritizing correct information and talking about church history and stuff that it's easy to forget about the love part. It just kind of falls by the wayside. Or we don't consciously think about the fact that like the two greatest commands in the Word of God are about firstly loving Him and loving each other. Eh? And I just want to ask you, like, when you really love somebody, what does that look like? Like, what, what did that look like, let's say, when, if, you, if you're married when you fell in love with your spouse? Or um, just if there's someone you really like, like a good friend. What does that look like? You just love them for who they are, yeah? You do what you can to spend as much time together, yeah. Those are huge ones. I, I, I think sometimes in the Messianic movement, we get so focused on having correct information and you know, check, checking off all of the having the right doctrine that we kind of forget about the love part. It's a danger, seriously. Like, I, I've traveled extensively. I've visited a lot of Messianic congregations. I'm in touch with stuff on a broader level. And so often people will be like, oh, that person doesn't believe what I believe, so I'm writing them off. They're no longer a part of my life or part of the picture, blah, 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 blah. Like, seriously. And, and when that happens, we've missed the point. Our, our knowledge has gone to our heads, and we have become arrogant. And we've forgotten that the whole point of this thing is to give us a more fervent love, firstly, for the Almighty, and secondly, for each other. So if Torah study doesn't lead to a greater love for God and a greater love for each other, we've missed the boat. And we need to go back and we need to take a pulse. And I'm not saying that, again, this is something I'm saying on a movement level, right? Not on a community level so much. But um, hey, it's something that we can keep in mind too. 
So what does that look like when we love each other? It's like, you, have you ever noticed when you really love someone, you kind of like them too? Sometimes I like to think about it. Like, okay, God loves me, right? It's almost like a mantra. Like, of course, Jesus loves you, right? It's kind of, you take that for granted. But just stop and think that God, like, he likes you. Like, God really, really likes you. Wow. Like, God really, really likes me. Isn't that cool? It sure is saying something. Ask Genevieve. I'm one of the most annoying people on the planet. Just kidding. But, um, but, but like, that's, that's what happens with, each other, with us too, right? Like, when, we really, when the love of God is really kindled in our hearts, we actually like each other too. Like, we like being together. Um, we end up driving distances just so we can see each other and get together. And I see that all over this room. Like, really, we've driven ways so we can get together. And it's not just because we like, like each other it's because we like him first, right? Like, like when John was praying, I, that, just, that hit me so deeply. Like we are here because we, we love him and we want to meet with him because he's the one who changes our lives. And I mean, really, if it wasn't for him, we could be sleeping in right now. And sleeping in feels really good, right? So um, like there's a, there's a love thing going on here. So that's something that really hit me out of this. Are, are we going to grow as a movement that prioritizes information and knowledge in our heads, or are we going to prioritize love, loving each other? And what's that going to look like? So that's something that hit me hard. That's something that convicted me. Like, I'm a bit of a brain sometimes. I'm like a nerd. I love studying, and I love history and information, right? So just realizing there's such a balance there. I know, I, I'm really, I, I, I really admire the model of, like, impassioned scholarship. You know, like, studying the Word and having information and being in touch with history, but doing it from a great heart, doing it with, like, a heroic spirit, like, coming at it from an attitude of love. Yeah. So, that's something that I feel the Father challenging me to, to grow in. Uh, we're just going to look, look through a couple other things in these, these chapters in 1 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, we can carry on that theme. So he says, like, the moment that you think you know something, that's the moment that you can know that you don't actually know what you're supposed to know. It's kind of a mouthful, right? But just like, man, that's like, that's a shot, hey? Like, that'll take us, that takes me down a notch, really. So that's, that's, that's a really great challenge. Genevieve and I realized that last year, usually we focus on what we know, and like, we like to talk about what we know, right? Um, but how many of us stop and ask ourselves, what don't I know? What, in which areas can I grow? In my, uh, my, 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 my understanding of scripture, or uh, how to relate to people, or you name it. I mean, this isn't just on a personal level or like in a religious context. In, in the business world, this is really smart. Don't just ask yourself what you know. Focus on what you don't know. Because if you focus on what you don't know, you're always going to grow. So there's like a personal development life coach tip for you. How's that? <laughs> and um, so here he says like, so if we love God, we're known by him. Uh, this, is, this is like paradoxical because like God is omniscient. He knows everything, right? How can it be that he knows some people but he what, doesn't know other people? Like what, he doesn't know your name or he doesn't know your address or, or he just like, you kind of never crossed, you never crossed his radar? Or, what does it mean that God knows you? This is something I've been contemplating this week. You remember, Yeshua, he told this story about... Um, these people who were going to go to this big wedding. It was like a big reception, a wedding reception, and it was late in the evening, right? And there was a certain time when you had to be there by. It was a deadline. And uh, some people were out getting some stuff ready because, like, I don't know, they didn't have it ready. And they closed the doors and they locked the doors on the reception. And these people came back too late. And they were like, let us in, let us in. And the groom himself went and he listened and he said, sorry, I don't know you. And he walked off and they were left in the cold. You know that story, right? And so that was Yeshua's story about us. Like, are we going to be tracking with him? Are we going to be, like, really alive to him? Are we going to be prioritizing our spiritual growth and stuff? Or are we just going to end up, like, out in the cold when he comes back and he's going to give us the cold shoulder and, like, not even recognize our faces? You realize that, hey? Like, everybody on the planet, when, when Jesus, when Yeshua comes back, there are only going to be two categories of people. There are going to be people that he knows and he recognizes and that he welcomes into his eternal kingdom, and then there's going to be the outsiders that he doesn't know. And uh, it's scary. 
Like in Matthew 7, he said, there are going to be people who did like miracles in his name, who cast out demons, who did the whole charismatic nine yards. And he's going to say, sorry, sorry, buddy, I don't know you. So here, here's the key, though. Here's the key. Paul says, there, here's how you can know if God like knows you, if you love him. And this has been really challenging for me because I, I think on like I think on a practical level. Okay, I'm a very practical-minded person. I like to be able to quantify stuff. When people start talking on like on an ethereal, non-quantifiable level, they lose me really fast. Okay, so this is a hard one for me. Like, what loving God? What does that look like, really? And he's really been challenging me in that area. I'm going to share something with you guys from my, from my own my personal life. Like, okay, you know, uh, I have a prayer life, right? Like Genevieve and I, we pray together in the morning. And I like to try and get in the Word and study a bit in the morning. And kind of like, sets, the, sets the tone of my day, right? And it's like the best time to grow and stuff. And um, after a while, I was like, how do I know if I'm just talking or if I'm really praying because I love God? How do I know if I'm really doing anything because I love God? I mean, what if I'm just doing it, you know? And I, I think he was kind of like shining a spotlight on me and I was kind of like going through some self-examination with regards to my motives, eh? And uh, <clears throat> I, I felt like he, he gave me like a challenge. It was like about a month or something. For a month, he gave me this challenge to just love him without doing or saying anything. Just to like sit there and love him. Like with my heart, right? Because like we can't love if our hearts aren't into it. And sometimes I realize, like, my heart isn't in what I pray. My heart isn't in, like, when I do certain mitzvot, like certain commandments. I just do it, right? Because I've done it for however many years and blah, blah, blah. So, so that was the challenge, right? Just, just sit there and love him, right? <clears throat> and so I would, like, get up and I would, I, would, I would make some coffee first because if I don't make some coffee, I, like, conk out after a couple minutes and I'm totally dysfunctional. So I'd, like, get a cup of coffee and I'd sit there and then I would just love God, right? And, and, and at first it was, like, really hard because I realized... I don't think I love him very much sometimes because my mind is like a, the ultimate ping pong ball, right? Like bouncing all over the place. And I'm like, oh my goodness, like 10 minutes just passed and I didn't even think about God once. Like seriously. And, I, and this is the time that he gave me to really love on him, right? And I realized, man, like my heart in some areas is really cold to him. Like in some regards, I'm not very close to him at all. And maybe I don't love him very much. And it was like really brutal, I mean, okay, it can be really boring just sitting there. It can be really frustrating when you're there to meet with God and your mind is bouncing all over the place and you feel like you're a million miles away, right? But it was really like, it was the best dose of reality I ever had because it was the start of a good journey. It was the start of this journey of being like, do I really love him, right? And it was kind of humbling. I don't know, did you ever notice sometimes when you get the reality check and you get humbled, that's the start of good stuff? That's where you start to change? So that's what it was like, eh? It was like, okay, God, Maybe I don't like love you as much as I would like to think that I do, but I do want to love you, and I know that your love is a fire, like we read about in Song of Songs. And one of the promises in the New Covenant is like, you're going to ignite that fire in my heart. Like, you're going to submerse me in that fire, right? So I, I really welcome you to do that, because um, I'm not going anywhere without you, you know? Kind of thoughts along those lines. And uh, I don't know, I, I challenge you to try that sometime. It's, it might, you know, just sit there and love him with your heart. You might find that, like, you do not... I don't know. Maybe you'll have some discoveries. But, like, maybe that'll be the start of an awesome journey. And here's the cool thing. Okay, like, I don't know. I'm not one of those people to, like, sit and stare at my belly button and call that spiritual, you know? Um, I mean, I, I would probably be, be a Buddhist if I wanted that, that, um, that form of spirituality or whatever. I'm not slamming Buddhism, but you know what I mean, right? And um, I, I'm action-oriented. I love action, right? Like, there's this side where, like... Loving God is equated with doing His commandments, like doing the mission that He has for us, right? So the cool thing was just sitting there in the morning and shutting up and not doing anything and just loving Him, it really helped me realize why I do what I do throughout the day also. Like set, it, set, it set the tone, right? It's like, wow, so I'm going to be uh, going through my day and I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. There's some stuff on my to-do list. And I'm doing this because I love you. I'm not just doing it because I have to or whatever. Man, like that made a big difference. So, anyway, that, that's just a story from my spiritual life in the last couple of months. Um, I challenge you, like, really get into this loving him thing. What does that look like? You know, what does it look like to just love him with all our hearts? I don't know. I'm not there. If we were to be honest, like, really, how many of us could say, like, yeah, I really love God throughout the day, you know? But, I mean, 
I think he wants to kindle more of that fire in, in our lives. And I want to go there with him. I really do. I mean, man, if we just, like, come here on Shabbat mornings and do our thing and then go home and, like, I don't know, kind of kind of just, like, so much for him for the rest of the week, like, count me out, you know? It's a real thing. Mike, yeah, thank you for, for that reminder, too. So in Matthew 7, I forgot about that, actually, off the top of my head. When he said, what he said is he didn't just say, like, take off, I don't know you. He said, like, away from me, you workers of lawlessness. The Greek term there is anomia, and it means being without, without his law without his Torah. So, you know, there's a real kick today to, to, like, underscore the relational aspect of our spiritual life, right? I mean, how many times have we heard it? It's not about re- religion, it's about relationship. And, uh, and I agree, it is about relationship. But here's a thought. God doesn't do casual relationships. Like, many of our relationships in the Western world are casual. That's the way we do stuff. Um, whether it be dating or just friends come and go or someone like adds you on Facebook as a friend and now you're friends, right? <laughs> I mean, really, like we live in a world of casual relationships and that, that's a very Western thing. But th- stop and think about this. Like he is a God of covenant relationship. So he's, it's not just about relationship or ca- like the casual relationship thing. Like he's a God of covenant relationship. What does that look like, eh? Like that's a serious relationship. Yeah, I posted that on Facebook this week and had some conversations with people about it. That's something I've been thinking about along those lines. So, you know, along those lines, there is a place for God's law in our lives. It's, it's through his law that he expresses to us what he likes and what he doesn't like, uh, what, pleases, what pleases him, what pleases his heart, uh, things like that. And, and that's summed up in his commandments, his mitzvot. Like, like, uh, like you mentioned, you know, he said several times, like, okay, if you love me, then keep my commandments, because that's... Maybe you could say that, like, that's the love language of God. You know, how many, how many of you read, have read the five love languages? No? Wow, I can't believe how Okay, a couple of you did. <clears throat> Genevieve read it, read it. I started reading it, and it was so painful I couldn't read it. <laughs> it's like, it was all about relationships. And I, 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 I'm, I don't know, it was just, like, he took forever to make a point, And I just couldn't do it. I'm sorry. So Genevieve just summed it up for me. And I'm still learning about love languages stuff. But, like, here's the cool thing. Like, God has a love language. And when we do one of the things that he said in his word, okay, like, even one of the things he said, it's one of the big ten, the top ten, right? Like, set apart his Sabbath, you know, rest on it and honor him and stuff. That's his love language. So, like, us just getting together today, us resting today and blocking this time out of our schedules to spend with him, that's the love language of God. Yeah, so that, that's the action side of things, too. And, um, man, I hope none of you think badly of me that I couldn't finish the five love languages. But you know what? I was in Scott's parable last week. I usually like to go check out the men's section and the business section, and they have a new book. It's like they wrote like a version of the five love languages, especially for men. And it was shorter, and, and I, I was like, you know what? I might be able to actually get through that. So I, I don't know. I, I might pick that up. The in other words version, right? Just like, just get to the point. Tell me what you're trying to say, right? And make it practical. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, uh, like, maybe that can be like a, a spiritual thing, like practice. Just loving him throughout the day. You know, just from, our, from your heart. Just loving him. Straight from you to him. You know, how many times a day can we do that? How many times can we check in and just love him? And then express that in, in the things we do, eh? That, that's like, that's the track that I'm really on right now. And I wasn't planning to say any of that, actually. I don't know, I have some notes here, but like, I just feel like that's what I was supposed to share with you so far. So, I'll, I'll share something cool with you guys. Okay, how many of you here speak only one language, like you're monolingual? Okay, how many of you are like bilingual? How many of you speak two languages? Wow, we are definitely in Western Canada here, like <laughs> English and tongue. <laughs> you have to understand the language. How many of you are like trilingual, just out of curiosity? Woo! We're definitely in Western Canada. Most of us only speak English. That's funny. But anyway, um, okay, so for those of you who like know a couple languages, you, you, you probably know that whenever you translate a thought from one language to another, you lose part of the meaning, right? Um, between Western languages, you don't lose as much of the meaning. But when you're translating, let's say, between Chinese and English, you run the risk of losing a lot of the meaning especially if you're dealing with poetry or something, eh? And um, that's very true of the Bible, because the Bible is written in Hebrew, which is not even a Western language. It doesn't even belong to the Japhetic language group that English and European languages belong to, right? Like, it was written in a Middle Eastern language, and Middle Eastern people are significantly different. They think differently. There's a different worldview going on there, eh? 
And uh, I'll, I'll share with you an insight into the actual Hebrew word for commandment. Because when we think of like, okay, what do you, what, I'm just going to, what do you think of when you hear the word commandment? Like what picture comes to mind? Just tell me. Someone with authority. Someone with authority, okay, yeah. You're supposed to do it, right. Or what kind of feelings accompany it? That too. Stern. I, I think of like a commandant or something. Like someone barking orders, you know, or a military situation, maybe with a sergeant like shouting at someone. Um, for, for I think a lot of us, when we hear the word commandment, that's what we think of. And the Hebrew word doesn't have that concept, eh? Like this is an example. So when we read the Bible, we read it, read it through a Western lens, and we think, we, when we hear the word commandment, we think like legalism, God barking orders, and like God like passing down directions from um, behind closed doors in his heavenly boardroom or whatever, you know, and listen to them or you get fired or something, I don't know. Like, we, get, we have all kinds of ideas. But the Hebrew word for commandment is mitzvah. Everybody say mitzvah. mitzvah. It's like M-I-T-Z-A-H. No, M-I-T-V-Z-A-H. Sorry, mitzvah. Yeah. I'm um, sorry, I'm going to try again. M-I-T-Z-V-A-H. Okay, good. Thank you. <laughs> It's like what Dave and I were talking about. Spelling Hebrew words, you can do it however you want. Right. But anyway, so okay, so mitzvah, right? So like when you do something that God said to do in his word, that's a mitzvah. You're doing a mitzvah, right? The plural is mitzvot. Everybody say mitzvot. So when you do a bunch of things that he said to do, those are mitzvot. Okay, you're doing mitzvot. So like, you know, he said, love, if you love me, keep my mitzvot. So like mitzvot are the love language of the Holy One, right? Now here's the thing. Did you know that that term mitzvah comes from the Hebrew word for one of your body parts? It comes from the Hebrew word for your neck. Yeah, it's like the same thing in Hebrew. They have the same root. Now in English, we don't have as much of that. Like you have a word that represents something and it's not connected. But in Hebrew, all words are composed of three-letter roots and they belong to families of words, right? So you often have a couple words that are connected. And we totally miss that when we read English translations. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to give you the bigger picture here behind this word for commandment. So like, um, a, like a mitzvah in Hebrew has everything to do with connecting. The main idea behind a commandment is the idea of connecting. Like what, what does your neck do? What is the function of your neck? It connects your head to your body. It holds your head up, etc. Right? So when you read about commands in the Bible... It is something that God said to do, and he is authoritative. So there is that element, but on a deeper level, it has the idea of a connection point between you and him. It has to do with connecting with him, okay? So that's putting that whole concept of a commandment in a relational context. See, I can talk about relationships. <laughs> Just because, yeah, anyway. But, um, so, and like, even in the Jewish world, um, there are some traditional Jewish translations. And when, when, um, when the Holy One is talking in His Word about Him commanding His people to do something, they translate that as Him enjoining something upon His people. There's that idea of joining or connecting, right? So, look at it that way. Every single thing that He said to do in His Word, whether it be a vertical mitzvah, something between you and Him, like doing Shabbat, or for me, you know, wearing tzitzit, wearing fringes, that is a connection point between him and me. It's a point for me to stop and just think about him and, uh, you know, focus on him and stuff. And then also when we do horizontal mitzvot, when we do stuff that he said to uh, do for each other, that is like another connection point between him and you. That's the idea. So, like, when Paul talks in his epistles about how we're a body, like as a community of disciples, we're a body, and our job is to stay connected to the head, who is Yeshua, he's talking like, in, in the Hebraic mindset, he's talking about commandments there, right? So like when we as a body do the stuff that he said, when we do the mitzvot, including some of the ones that traditionally have been overlooked from the Old Testament, we are cleaving to the head, who is Yeshua. Like we're experiencing that unity between him and us, eh? So that's the idea. I wanted to share that with you. Um, so... Whenever you see commandment, just think about that. That your neck is a picture of, of, of the commandments of God. Yeah, it does. Torah equates with instruction. In fact, flip over. I'm just going to flip to our, our Torah portion section just to back Dave up on that. Um, in Exodus chapter 16, um, keep your finger in Corinthians because we're going to go back there, but we'll just toggle for a second here. Okay, so in Exodus 16 verse 4, 
um, it says, Then Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my... What, did, what does your Bible say? Okay, you have a Hebrew Bible. Yours says law? Okay. Yours says law? Yeah, I, I have a New American Standard and it says instruction. So, the, so he says, I'm testing them to see if they'll walk in my instruction. And uh, the word there is my Torah, right? And uh, it's just kind of cool that the New American Standard Bible actually translate that word as instruction. Because that's the idea, right? So again, it takes it out of this context of like sergeants barking orders and law and legalism to like the kind of instruction that would, a father would give his, his, his daughter or his son so that she or he can be successful in life and do well. Yeah. Especially in the Mana episode, hey? Because like he even said, like, hey, gather twice as much on Friday because Saturday there's not going to be any manna showing up. And I mean, some people got up on Saturday morning and they went out there to get their manna, right? And there wasn't anything there. And the Holy One was pretty upset with them. Right. I kind of wonder, like, what that has to teach us about Shabbat. Like, just when you, when you block Saturday out of your schedule to spend time with God and family and stuff, like, what are you saying? I know, it's, it's funny, because often people will say, like, man, doing the Sabbath, like, that sounds like a whole bunch of legalism and bondage and stuff to me. But, you know, I think the opposite is true, actually. I think it's an act of faith to observe the Sabbath. Like, okay, we're saved through faith, Right? I believe that doing Shabbat is also an act of faith. Because, you know, those people who, um, who went out on Saturday morning to get their manna, they went out because they didn't trust him. They felt like they had to work seven days a week. Maybe they bordered on workaholism. Who knows? I border on workaholism. Shabbat has been like a lifeline for me. It's been a touch point with sanity for me, seriously. You know? But like, for, for those of us who like, maybe we're stressed about our financial situations, or uh, maybe we're like between jobs or whatever, like to do Shabbat, that is, a, that is a massive act of faith. To say that you trust God to provide for your needs. That ultimately he's going to come through for you if you take him at his word. Yeah. Yes, I believe that's true. Like he, he honors us when we honor his word. So, you know, it says we're saved by grace through faith, right? I, for me, Shabbat is all about faith, is an act of faith. It's also all about grace. Because how does he provide for us? He provides for us by his grace. Like, he provides for us generously. He just does it because he's a parent who loves us, right? And who, um, who takes care of us. And so, you know, just to rest on Shabbat, for me, personally, it has helped me stay in touch with his grace on a very practical level, you know, in terms of business and the financial sector of our lives and stuff. Let's continue looking through Corinthians here. We usually go to about twelve thirty, just so you guys know. And um, as you as you can see, we're you know we're interactive. So if you have something to share, a question, um, please feel free to do that too. So in Corinthians, chapter First Corinthians eight verse nine verse five. This is kind of just just in, a little interesting side note here. Um, he says, "Don't we have a right to take along a believing wife?" even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Master and Cephas. So um, think about this for a sec. Like, Yeshua's apostles, they were married, which uh, generally implies they had kids, right? Um, Yeshua had four younger brothers and at least two sisters, and they were married, and they had kids. So here's the question. Like, what happened to all those families? Like, Yeshua had literal relatives. What happened to them after the first century? Where did they go in the second and the third and the fourth century? Did they all just apostatize and um, maybe go back to non-Messianic Judaism? Um, did they just assimilate uh, into the Gentile world? Uh, did they get persecuted out of existence? Uh, what happened to them? Where? Yeah, right. Um, yes. Uh, you know, when the second temple was destroyed in 70 CE, a lot of them fled out of the land of Israel. And then at the time of the Bar Kokhba revolt in 132 to 135, um, 
like Jews were just generally cleared out of the land of Israel by the Romans. But um, here's something interesting. What were the early believers called? Let's think about this for a second. They were called Jews, yeah. For the first decade, that's true. There was only Jewish people who believed in him. Okay, until Cornelius. They were called the Nazarenes. That's right. You remember Paul was called a, a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He was quite a pesky fellow, they called him, in that passage. It's in like Acts. But think about that. The early believers were called a sect. What were they a sect of? Of Judaism. That's right. They were also called the way. Um, the early believers, just think about that. They were called a sect of Judaism. So that means they fit under the broader umbrella of Judaism. They continued to be seen as part of the, the, the people of Israel, the people of God. And their sect, like there were quite a few sects. Name, name a couple for me. Huh? Pharisees. Yeah, the Pharisees, the Prussians, <laughs> the Sadducees, Sadducees. Yeah, the Ebionites, they have your name. Well, they came a little bit later, but. The Essenes. The Essenes, mm hmm. There were also the Herodians, there were the Bothusians. There were, there were, um, Jewish, Jewish history says there were at least 24 different sects running around in the Second Temple era. And one of those sects was the sect of the Nazarenes. So that's us, okay? Now here's the interesting thing. The Nazarenes were still around three and four hundred years later. Um, during the early years of the Roman Catholic Church, there were a couple uh, historians like uh, Eusebius. Everybody say Eusebius or Eusebius. Some people would say. And Epiphanius. Everybody say Epiphanius. Okay? They were like the big heavy hitter historians of the early Roman Catholic Church. And uh, when it, they felt that one of their jobs was to address every single sect of Christianity at that time and write them all off as heretics and establish the newly established Roman Catholic Church as the only true church. Okay, so that was kind of, they kind of saw that as their job. So they, write some, they wrote some massive books. And the great thing was it gives us a really good picture of, the early, of early Christianity in the three and four hundreds. And uh, we learn about all these different movements. And one of these uh, movements that they talked about was the Nazarenes. And... Like, you can't underscore the importance of this enough. These were the literal descendants of Yeshua's brothers and their families, of, uh, of the apostles and their families. So the literal descendants of that first generation of disciples, they were still around. And get this, both Eusebius and Epiphanius say, these guys are still Jewish. They still celebrate Shabbat. They still circumcise their sons. They still read from the law and the prophets in Hebrew. Epiphanius said, essentially, they're not any different from other Jews except that they believe in Yeshua as the Messiah. So if you want to know what happened to the first generation of disciples, to the early church, they were still around three or four hundred years later. And they still, they still had that Hebraic, that Hebraic feel. There was still a Jewish element there, eh? So anyway, that's just a verse that, that we can kind of use as a springboard to uh, give us a little snapshot of church history, eh? So um, check it out. For yourself, if you want. Yeah. Also, um, here's something cool. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, uh, Paul is addressing this early Messianic community in Corinth. And uh, was this community primarily Jewish or non-Jewish? It's primarily non-Jewish. There were some Jewish people there too. And um, they, were, they were getting along to some degree. And, and just listen to this. Listen to this. He says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, etc. Did you notice, though, when he talks about that generation that emerged from Egypt, he calls them our fathers. He calls them Avotenu. Did you notice who he was addressing that to, though? He wasn't just addressing that to the little Jewish subset of that church. He was, he was saying that to everybody. So, like, this generation that we read about that came out of Egypt during the Exodus, according to Paul, according to Pauline theology, those are your fathers. Does that mean literally, on a biological level? Not, not necessarily. But Paul's saying, you are part of the family. You have been brought into the family. So, you know, all those stories in the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible, those are about your history. That's your past. Yeah. Often, you know, um, a lot, of, a lot of believers have a disconnect when they read the Old Testament. It's like, well, you know, like that's about the Jews, right? And I'm not Jewish, so I don't know. It doesn't really feel like it applies to me. But Paul says, no, that is about you. That is about your history. You are part of the family. So when you read the Hebrew Bible, read it that way, and it's going to come to life for you, and you're going to connect with it a, a lot more. 
Um, yeah. Here are a couple of verses. Uh, Paul talked about a couple couple things in terms of his attitude and his modus operandi. And uh, I, I, I wonder, like, if we were to uh, evaluate ourselves as a community here or uh, as a broader movement, or let's just say as the body of Christ, like every single Christian on the planet, I wonder how well we would do if we were to compare ourselves to Paul, like Paul's attitude here. Let's look at a couple of verses together in that regard. I, I think it could be a challenge to us, actually. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 13, he says, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I won't cause my brother to stumble. So, so Paul was like really careful to avoid causing undue offense to a fellow believer. Specifically, he was talking about how some people had different scruples with regards to their diet than other people. Um, you know, some traditional Jewish issues about kosher and stuff, right? Uh, the fine points of kosher. And uh, did you notice his attitude? Like, he was like, you know what? If I have a Jewish brother and the way I eat would cause that brother to stumble, I will change the way I eat because I love him. Because I would never want to cause him to stumble. That, that's Paul. Right. Um, let's look at another couple of verses like that. In um, ten verse twenty, t- ten verse twenty-four, he says, "Let no one seek his own, his own good, but that of his neighbor." So, it's like, what does it look like to seek the good of our fellow believers? Um, again, remember, he's writing to a mixed congregation of Jewish and non-Jewish people, right? That's like a key to understanding this. In um, 10 verse uh, 32, he says, um, give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, God's congregation. So it's like, there's something about Paul that's so sensitive, that cares about other people, that really doesn't want to like offend people more than he has to. And I wonder what that would look like in the Messianic community. Because I mean, hey, really, like we do some stuff that a lot of Christianity doesn't do, right? Um, we don't do some stuff that much of Christianity does. So, but as we're, as we're sharing our stance on some things, what does it look like to do that in a way that isn't going to offend people, if at all possible, right? And, uh, and to toggle like to the Christian side, the, the broader Christian side of things, what would that look like? Like, okay, I have people, okay, like I, I eat relatively kosher, right? I eat uh, simple biblical kosher. And... Um, you know, I'll have people who will disagree with me on that in terms of their stance, and some people will rub it in my face. They'll be like, yeah, I'm you know, eating my New Testament kosher breakfast of, of um, whatever, ha, 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 bacon and eggs this morning. I, I like bacon, by the way. I, I eat turkey bacon or beef bacon. It's awesome. But, like, but like, and, and like, people will like rub that in my face, right? And um, often, like, that's the general attitude in the body of Christ. It's like if someone has, a different, has different scruples in terms of their diet, like we jump on them, we pounce on them, or we... Or we um, think they're weird, or we, I don't know, you name it, right? Maybe, maybe we've all been there. Maybe we've experienced that. Maybe we've treated people like that. I don't know. But what does it look like if we take the attitude of Paul? Yeah, that, that's the question. I'll just leave that standing. You know, as, as God continues to bring more Jewish people into the body of Christ, how are we going to relate to those people? Regardless of whether or not we agree with all of their fine points of, of, of halakha, like how they, do, how they do the Torah, right? How's that going to look? So, the, so there's a challenge for us. Here's, here's another verse along those lines. In uh, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 20, he said, To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law. Right? So he's like listing these different categories of people, and he's saying like he does everything he can to relate to them on their level. It's like you become like that person. So that you can actually, like, you know, what does it look like to walk in, in those people's shoes or boots? And um, did you notice he begins by talking about the Jewish people? As I think that's kind of funny because Paul was like the quintessential Jew, right? I mean, he was like the ultimate Jew. <laughs> Here he is saying, like, yeah, the Jewish people, I became like a Jewish person. I mean, that must not have been too hard for Paul because he was a Jewish person, right? It's kind of, but, so why did he say that? Like, maybe he was saying that for our sakes. Maybe he was trying to communicate an attitude to us. So, you know, like the heart of God is passionate for the Jewish people. Yeshua died to be the king of the Jewish people. Remember David? David was like a nationally received, popular king of Israel. Like that's what Yeshua is going to be like with the Jewish people in the future. He died for that. He was born for that. Remember that title that came up in conjunction with his birth and his death? Yeshua of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. 
Where is he who was born king of the Jews? So like this is really close to his heart, eh? So as we connect with the heart of Messiah, what does that look like? Like, you know, I'm talking on a broader level as the broader Christian community. What does it look like to uh, really prioritize reaching Jewish people? I mean, uh, not to the exclusion of reaching everybody else, right? But I mean, when we read church history, like, we haven't done a very good job reaching Jewish people with the gospel. So what does that look like as we begin to connect with that area of God's heart and begin to factor that into our outreach? Maybe that means some of us, maybe even communities like this, maybe this is part of why we exist, need to be able to relate to Jewish people in a Jewish way and express our faith in a Jewish way. And uh, maybe be able to like talk some Hebrew, Jewish lingo. You know what I'm saying? So, like the, our community here in Prince Albert and, and Messianic congregations in general, this is something that is like so close to the heart of God. He is gearing this up so that we can reach the Jewish people with His love, with the message of Yeshua, uh, representing Him accurately. And I mean, even you know, we had our Israeli friends at the mall. They shut down their kiosk now, but we we develop friendships with those with those kids. You know, and they had a, they had a closer look at Yeshua than they've ever had before. For the first time, maybe in their lives, they realized that Jesus of Nazareth wasn't like a blonde hair, blue-eyed Malibu Jesus, who um, who was more like Hitler than like a good Jewish rabbi. Like, unfortunately, for a lot of Jewish people, that's what they think, right? And and so for like for us to be able to befriend people like that, I'm using them as an example, and for them to see that like, our faith in Yeshua causes us to honor the covenants of God, historically. Um, we love the Hebrew Bible. You know? um, we even learn like, Hebrew expressions of praise. Like Greg one day, he asked me, like, so how do you say praise the Lord in Hebrew, right? I was like, well, I usually say Baruch Hashem, right? But, like, bless the name. And so, you know, you, like, use that on our Israeli friends, right? And they, they thought it was so cool. Like, we saw them a little bit after, and I was like, man, Greg's so cool. He learns Hebrew and actually uses it, you know? So, I mean, th- just things like that. Maybe to us that seems trivial. Maybe it doesn't seem important. But in terms of, like, missional strategy to reach the Jewish people, it is everything. The little things are everything, right? So... I, I just think, you know what, like when it comes to Paul and his modus operandi, we have really failed to live that out as the broader body of Christ. But that's changing in the last century or so. And that's why we're here, right? So hopefully that gives us, uh, we're, we're here for more than just that. But that is a part of it, right? And that's a part that's very close to my heart. So let's look at a couple of things from the parsha, and we're going we're gonna to finish in about five minutes here. Um, okay, like, we have an enemy, right? We have an enemy who is our sworn foe, and he's out to, like, knock every one of us off. And uh, he shows up in almost the whole of Scripture, um, all the way from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20. He's all over the place. And uh, every one of us has, at one time or another, been targeted by him. We have taken hits. Our families have taken hits. Uh, so one of the themes that we've been discussing off and on is spiritual warfare. What does it look like when you engage in combat with the adversary? What is our weaponry? What are, uh, what are our strategies, etc.? And I've been trying to give us a bigger picture of this. Because often our, our, um, our understanding of spiritual warfare is limited, in my opinion, because we only use the New Testament. But there's spiritual warfare in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament also. And I'm going to give you an example. Like, this whole thing with Pharaoh, that's like spiritual warfare maxed out. Like, that is the heat of combat here. Like, this is head-to-head, right? And um, even this thing with him pursuing the Israelites, and he's going to try and just butcher the nation, and then they escape through the sea. Here's here's a couple little insights into spiritual warfare. When Israel was on the verge of being annihilated by Pharaoh and his anti-Semitic forces... Moses was like, okay, the people were freaking out, right? Moses was like, God, what are we going to do? You need to help. And what was his response? What was God's response? In uh, the book of Exodus chapter 14, verse like 13, right around there. Okay, Moses, first Moses says, don't be afraid. Stand by and see Yahweh's salvation, which he will accomplish for you today. Then he says, you'll never see them again. He will fight for you while you keep silent. So get this. There is a time when silence is a more effective strategy than talking against the evil one. There is a silence of faith. And it is an act of faith to just be quiet and watch him come through for you. 
um, doing Shabbat, in my opinion, is, is spiritual warfare. Uh, another thing is, um, he, he, this is the passage where he talks about how he's our healer. Right? He's like Yahweh Rofecha. He's Yahweh your healer, right? Uh, Jehovah Rapha, I think that's often how it's said in like, the English world, right? Yeah. And, um, but that's a conditional promise. So here's another example. Like, often if someone is sick, we'll be like, Shandala, Shandala, and bind the devil, and, and whatever. You know? And there's a place for that. I, I, I value that. But here's, here, here, here's the thing. In this passage, God says, He makes a promise. He says, If you do this, then I will not place the diseases of Egypt upon you. Because I am your healer. Like, this is who he is. This is what he does, right? Sometimes, sometimes I think the way we do spiritual warfare can almost undermine the sovereignty of God. Like, sometimes we give more power to the devil than to God. Yeah, and, and, and like, listen to me here. Like, I, I believe in resisting the devil. I believe in casting out demons, right? I believe in praying in the Spirit. These are powerful weapons that are at our disposal. But maybe this is, maybe this is something that's even more powerful, his promise, uh, who he is that, is, that is prefaced by condition. Let, let's look at that together for a second. Um, he says in Exodus chapter 15, verse 26, he says, If you will listen to my voice and do what's right in my sight and give ear to my commandments and keep all my laws, then I will put none of the diseases on you which I've put on the Egyptians, for I, Yahweh, am your healer. So did you notice it's, it's a conditional promise? We have a part to play here. He says, if you listen to me, right? If you keep my laws, if you do my commandments, if you, if you like pay attention to me, right? Then I will not place any of the diseases of Egypt. So what are some of his commandments? You know, as, as we're continuing to read through the Torah, we'll discover that some of God's commandments just pertain to really basic stuff like hygiene. Like seriously, just like hygiene. Um, and our diet and stuff that maybe we would be tended to poo-poo because it's so not spiritual but according to God that is spiritual and that's part of our training is the army of God that, that is spiritual warfare just keeping our bodies like healthy and clean that's spiritual warfare every time we do one of the commandments of God that is spiritual warfare that is a force of healing in your world yeah so that's kind of the, that's kind of the underlying idea there and I mean, like, so having said that too, like, when Genevieve and I pray every morning, I just, I verbally resist the devil from our lives, I command saying to not touch us, and stuff like that, right? And so, like, I, I, I want to acknowledge there is that side, and I do that, but I'm trying to look at the bigger picture of spiritual warfare here, right? So, yeah. I'll, I'll share with you one picture, and, and then we'll finish. So, um, Moses, like, so there's this, like, big, this is another spiritual warfare thing. So there's this big, like, battle going on, right? And Joshua and his guys are down there, and they're, like, slugging it out with the Amalekites. And, um, like, the tide of the battle was, like, shifting back and forth and back and forth. And uh, it, it all depended on Moses' arms, right? This is like when Moses, sorry, when Moses' arms were up like this, then the people of Israel would be winning. And when Moses' arms got tired and they went down, then the Amalekites would be winning. Like, what does that mean? Does that mean, like, if you walk around like this all day, like, man, you're going to be a powerful person, you know? Um, I'll, I'll just share with you a couple, a couple of things. Here, here's, here's some traditional Jewish commentary from the Midrash about this that, that I think you'll appreciate. It says, uh, The lifting up of Moses' hands didn't defeat Amalek, nor did the copper serpent stay the bite of the burning serpents. It was the directing by these of the hearts of the people of Israel with their prayers heavenward that defeated Amalek and caused the fiery serpents to cease. Do you think there might be something to that? Like, just putting your hands up, you know, maybe, is that what it's really about? Or is, it, is that an example of how when we engage physically, it helps us to turn our hearts to Him? It, it, uh, it catalyzes prayer. Maybe that's the idea there? Could be. Here's something else. The staff of Moses. That was like, there's some kind of authority in that thing, right? It represented authority. Do you know what... The uh, okay, you know what a scroll looks like, right? You have your two dowels or rods, and then you have the the um, the leather parchment wrapped around it. Those staffs, that's like a picture of the staff of Moses, right? So, so here's another level of interpretation on that. When we take the word of God, when we take the Torah, and we hoist it up in our lives. Sorry, I keep whacking the mic. But anyway, when we hoist it up in our lives like that, we are lifting up His name. We are upholding His truth, and that is spiritual warfare. That is when, like, the dark side is, it goes on the defensive instead of the offensive, eh? 
So let's just ask ourselves what that's going to look like. And I think praise can be another part of that. Lifting your hands in praise, etc. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, yeah, we don't have a Torah scroll in our synagogue yet because they cost like 20 grand. I would love to have a Torah scroll sometime. But um, in the synagogue, after the readings from the Torah, like from the Bema, from the reading lectern, um, like you'll have a big hefty guy. You have to be pretty big for this. He'll go and he'll like grab the thing and he'll hoist it up like this, right? And then he'll turn around so that everybody can see what was written. And that's called Hagabah. It's like when you hoist it up. It's when you lift it up, like Moses' uh, staff was lifted up, right? And then you sing some liturgy and stuff. But that's the picture every Shabbat. And that's the picture of like us in the Spirit, when we do His Word, when we, when we prioritize it. Yeah. So um, I'll leave you with this question. Because um, this is what was in our weekly email, what we were going to talk about. Why didn't why did um, why did the people of Israel like wander in the wilderness for forty years? Why didn't they just go to Canaan? I mean, they took off in the wrong direction, right? I'll tell you a, I'll tell you a, a Jewish secret that has been very closely guarded for generation after generation. The reason is because Moses didn't want to ask directions. <laughs> yeah, that's the real reason. He, he, was, he just didn't know where he was going and he didn't want to ask directions. So the people of Israel ended up going into the desert for like 40 years and stuff and they finally got there. Well, specifically it says too, it's because like he, you know, he didn't want their hearts to faint when they encountered the resistance from the Philistines right away. It also says because like he was near. So he wanted, to go to, he wanted to take his people to the wilderness and you know, reveal himself to them and communicate with them personally. It's much more romantic than just like zipping to the destination, right? Like let's, let's take the long route, right? And enjoy the enjoy the journey and stuff maybe that's the idea maybe he wants to do that with us too Shalom I'm Izzy Avraham and thank you for joining me for this talk I delivered these messages live during the years I was leading a congregation they're now hosted by my Hebrew school Holy Language Institute at holylanguage.com if you're interested in the talks I've done since then, or if you'd just like to say thank you for these teachings, become a member at holylanguage.com.